welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the thoughtful book club podcast that consists of apparently, I've learned this from this book, very well-behaved children who were raised in sheltered helicopter parent times, I think. Amanda, would you agree? Apparently, yeah. (laughs) Wildly tame. Our childhoods were very boring and incredibly safe, apparently. And if you don't get the references we're making, that's because you probably didn't read The Body, which is a novella by Stephen King in the collection Different Seasons. Today, this episode will be a book club covering that novella. Uh, We kind of split up Different Seasons, and we so far we've covered one of the stories, which was, shoot, now I can't remember. I know it was the winter one. Uh, the breathing method. The breathing method. There you go. I was going to call it like cold New York or something terrible. Anyway, <laughs> breathing method. <laughs> uh, that was the previous book club. And then today we're going to be covering the body. And then that's it. There, There's two more novellas in here that we decided not to touch. Figured I'd take it easy on the readers and myself because I didn't want to read through all of them. Um, today we'll be doing a deep dive, an analytical deep dive into the novella The Body again, which is why we were so sheltered in our childhoods. Um, we chose Stephen King based on the prompt that Amanda gave me, which was to pick an author to read who I had never read before and who I was embarrassed to have never read. Stephen King, a literary kind of actually more of a cultural icon maybe than a literary one. I don't know if you agree. Yeah. Cross literary because also all his movies, right? That's Yeah, that's what I was thinking. He's more of like a pop culture icon than I, I mean, I know his books sell huge numbers and he's beloved, but I, it's almost like his movies are more well known probably. Mm-hmm. Adaptations anyway. So, today we'll be talking about that novella. If you read along and you want to listen in the discussion, then you've done everything correct. Well done. You're in the right place. We will be spoiling the entire story. The whole thing is fair game. We'll be doing our analyses and our thoughts on the entire story of the body. If you want to hear that anyway and you don't care about spoilers, you're just curious about it, or you just want to hear us talk, you're also in the right place. But if you are spoiler-averse or want to remain so, then I would say pause this and come back when you've read that one. Amanda, are you prepared? Are you ready to go on a journey? Yeah, I'm so ready. Down the train tracks. All right, get your hiking (laughs) boots on then. And your mosquito net? I don't know. Yeah, and your anti-leech. Yeah, salt lick. Get your, no, no, (laughs) maybe. They do come off with salt. Yeah, get your salt lick, your salt shaker ready. And let's dig in. We're going to begin with a our usual first segment for book clubs, which is surprises, pleasant or otherwise. So we're going to begin with some kind of stylistic note or a detail about the story that surprised us, for, for better or worse, or somewhere in between. Amanda, go ahead and start us off with your surprise from the body. Uh, my, it was like a, a surprise as in, I was like horrified, and this yeah. is perhaps the horror in the story for me, <laughs> but it's... Uh, the complete lack of meaningful parenting. I had like, I was feeling so anxious a lot of the time mm-hmm. because I was just like, what kind of parents are they? They're essentially like, some of them are beating their children. Some of them are straight up just ignoring their children. And yeah. others of them are just not even present at all. Like, because they have to work and stuff like that, which I get, but there's no caretaker there either. <laughs> just, yeah, it was yeah. mind boggling to me. And I was just like, I can't even, I was, my, my anxiety was like through the roof through that. Just thinking like, what would, what would that be like for Viola? Like if she had to go through any of that? <laughs> yeah. Tough one for parental connections of which there are yeah. probably very few <laughs> for most yeah. modern parents. I was, and even as you said that you're running through some of the, 
I don't know, parental mishaps or abuses. I, just, well, yeah. they're abuses. It's abuse. Um, it's yeah. straight up, uh, legally speaking even. But I, I was just thinking, is it even possible to, to get a kid a free like four-hour window these days, let alone a 48-hour window where they're – there's no actual confirmation from any of the kids. I mean, I know they pulled the pulled the trick of telling, you know, the crossover in all the directions. It looks like a complex chart, like those paranoia charts on a whiteboard or corkboard. And they're, you know, because right. we told them we're going to be here, but they're, they think we're there. And then they think, you know, but man, imagine just not knowing for sure for two days, you know, where your kid was. Yes. Yeah. No. That's not, no. <laughs> Very strange. A different time in rural Maine, a different time. I think that's a justified <laughs> justified surprise. In a, in a literary story sense, though, did it, I don't know, I guess we'll get into the meaning later, but did, did it surprise you in terms of the cohesion of the story? Did you feel like it fit together? I Yeah, I think that it was definitely a, a key component for one of the themes that I saw in the story. I just, um, from from a personal perspective, my dad also is from rural Maine, like right, I mean, right, super small town, no no stoplights or anything, no chain restaurants or anything. Yeah, and yeah. he had he was the seventh child, so he's got six siblings, and he was the youngest, mm-hmm. and uh, he did not get away with anything. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. The whole town knew my dad and like knew the Wentworths and right, right, which is a component in this story too. Yeah, to well, to an extent, with the the I was gonna call him the butcher. There's the store owner, and then there's also the junkyard man. I don't know any names you, at this point. If you've been listening for a long time, you, listeners will know I don't remember character names very well. So, <laughs> those two people. <laughs> yeah, I forgot what his, his name was like Rich or Rick or something. Richie, Rick. Yeah. Well, yeah, that does come up. That is an element in this story, too. So definitely worth pointing out. I had two surprises. I'm going to go with I think I'm going to go with the most important one first, probably. I was surprised at some of the digressive passages around the discovery of the body, which I think in a story where you name it like that and it's so clearly built up, you know, the way the the drama builds at first when the kids first hear about it. And that's the whole setup to the whole plot and everything. I thought that part paid off and it it felt like King at that moment gave himself the most kind of literary freedom to kind of roam around and explore some different moods and images and stuff. And there's the scene with the doe or the, I don't remember if it was a doe or a deer, but there's that scene when he wakes up and there's just some images and, and imagery and devices that are played with there that felt, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. Obviously I think you and I always tend to skew in terms of favoring maybe some more dense literary type of writing, but I just felt like that moment was really well achieved. I mean, granted, it comes back down when they get bullied by the old kids and it's more, it's a little more pulpy then and a little, not like silly, it's really dire, but it's maybe a little less, I don't know, literary. I don't need to stop falling back on that adjective. But yeah, I was surprised by that moment. I thought it was pretty well realized. I'm not sure if you liked it. I really did. And and it made me think that perhaps even like some of the language that surrounds like the story itself, it's very idyllic. It's like meant to be this mm-hmm. um, almost nostalgic looking back, but then you realize like the actual horror, the underlying horror of his childhood. Right, and so right. it's interesting to see that childish kind of like twist on that where he, he acknowledges some of the horrors, but then the really nice things he, I guess like really, conflates in his memory so that he can 
remember a better childhood than it actually was. And I think that's an interesting play that King did there. Yeah, and in a story when the entire premise right from the first line is something like the most wonderful or important things are the hardest to say, I, I, yeah. I shouldn't paraphrase. <laughs> I've got the book in front of me. Whatever yeah. he said. Um, I can pull it up quickly, sorry. Uh, but yeah, here. where the whole premise is the most important things are the hardest things to say. Yeah. And, you know, it's therefore it's setting up to be a story of, yeah, personal revelation, maybe growth, you know, understanding through reflection. Yeah, it's that moment I just think – Get, had the right amount of time to be thoughtful and a bit slow at first. And mm-hmm. it kind of gives you that reprieve before it jumps into the, you know, rather intense dialogue and all the 1960s insults and the back and forth with the, the older kids and everything. So yeah. I enjoyed that moment. I'll, I'll tag into the other surprise I wrote down that I don't think I have anything to expand on about is that I thought the overall intensity of the parenting did strike me a bit. It was a bit shocking to see some of the things and it and it just comes in so full force one of the first anecdotes the narrator tells us about is the kid whose father you know has the war flashback and then essentially burns his ears closed i didn't really I, i'm sure if i reread that i would understand it more but he he you know scars him yeah. permanently yeah teddy teddy yeah so i just coming in right away with that felt I mean, I know King has the reputation, right? He's a, people consider him a horror writer or a thriller writer and is not, uh, after reading these, I know now he's not afraid of those details and to really get into them. But yeah, that's still, that setting the tone with that, like on the first section, couple pages even, uh, did surprise me. I, maybe for better or worse, I think overall the parenting fits in with the narrative really well. But yeah, just coming in so hot with that story did, I don't know, it did take me by surprise at first. It is interesting, too, that both of the stories, um, both uh, The Breathing Method and, and this one, The Body, they both deal with the some of the after effects of war where the main character in the other one also has some like PTSD type oh, yeah. uh, symptoms. And then Teddy's dad has it, too. So I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And both, I mean, well realized enough that there's descriptions and everything. And I think it was... In terms of the, it's such a clear story about parent-child relationships, and then also the relationships between young friends too. But I just think that you get such a diversity of parenting in this that I think you can read into all those different dynamics and elements. It's kind of almost like he gave himself free reign to pick pick a nightmarish childhood scenario, and he kind of just has all of them here present in the story. Everyone has a different, you know, severe problem with their parents and the relationship there. So yeah, yeah, I think it worked. It just it came in so quickly, like when he's running through the his friends' backstories and everything, that I I was surprised by that. But you know, I guess with King, you should set certain expectations. Let's yeah. jump to our second segment, which I'm going to rename horribly, but whatever. We normally call this <laughs> "Please Continue, Make It Stop," because normally when we're doing a long work, we can say like, "Okay." you know, you wrote this way in the first half of the book. I liked it. I didn't. Here's what I'm hoping going forward, or here's where the story might go. But we finished the story. So I'm just renaming it the good and the bad. (laughs) Uh, What what was one thing that you thought really delivered and was good? What was one disappointing element or one that was bad? Uh, You can start us with either, Amanda. What do you got? Sure. I'll start with uh, something that I was um, a little weirded out by like as in I didn't understand its purpose. Chapter 22, which is the chapter after the leeches, and Gordy faints. The main character, the narrator, faints. Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure about like why that is. It's a really short chapter. It is like just him fainting and then him coming back from the fainting. And I'm I'm not sure 
like why that was necessary for the story. Um, I've, I've been trying to like think about him. Like, is it just to highlight how terrified he was? Is it to show that he was like so scared in order to contrast when he sticks by Chris later against the big kids? Um, is it about the scarring that's both literally literal and figurative, um, from the leech? I just, I don't know. It's, it's a lot of things that I can't quite pinpoint why it's there. If you wanted to overread it, we could certainly look into some kind of attack on his masculinity since you know like the leech the one that finally got him right was the one on his genitals that was the one that mm-hmm. put him over the edge and and it that was the one that also like exploded in blood <laughs> that he crushed so yeah. I, I feel like there's a maybe a touch of an overread you could give that if you really want to about you know that's the moment when his masculinity was threatened the most you know up to that mm-hmm. point like all the kids were equally freaking out about the leeches and they all were, you know, in equal terror. And then that's what pushed him over, over the edge. I don't know how much that would apply though. Yeah. I suppose that's interesting though. Cause I, I suppose I just accepted it and moved on because of its brevity. I mean, it does, there's not a lot of commentary on it. They just kind of get him up. There's a brief challenge or questioning whether they should continue, but they don't even, that didn't even feel like it was that long of an episode, right? They kind of decide in a paragraph. It didn't, you're right. It didn't yeah. feel like it took much out of the narrative. Did you have a reading mm-hmm. you wanted to think through? Or was that you're saying it's bad because you're it's unclear? Yeah, for me, it was just something that I noticed that I was like not satisfied with as far as the story. It was the one yeah. thing that stood out, and I was like, "Why is this here?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll I'll throw my bad in then too. The narrative voice, which coming out of the breathing method, I um, commended and was kind of impressed that some of the characters had such different life in their language and speaking and everything. This Mm -hmm. story also has really good narrative voice, first person voice. The problem is because it's a man telling it to you from the child's point of view, remembering his childhood, it's strange to see some of the slang come in and granted that's like, Oh, it's the kid saying the slang. But even in the narrative, there were moments when I was like, but this is a man saying this to me, like on 487 at like the climactic revelatory moment in the story, the most emotional, he ends the whole passage by saying, can you dig it? And it's just like, is he supposed to be a hippie? Am I like, what's the, is this like a 1970s or eighties, like hippie talking to me now? It, some of it felt very immature and there was a lot of homophobic language too throughout which i won't quote there's there's the f f word slang and and i don't think i'd ever seen that word as a verb before by the way that must be like a 1960s thing i'd never seen that word applied in that way so i get that you you can buy in and say well you know you got to stick with the time period relevant slang you got to stick with the even if the dialogue is a bit you know now considered definitely backwards or hateful or out of time whatever you want to say but and so like within the kids dialogue i buy it but the the narrative itself had moments where it felt like the kid was talking but it's not so i just thought it led to awkward segues and the can can you dig it moment i thought was truly unforgivable i thought that was the <laughs> corniest worst ending to a otherwise very thoughtful and like pretty intricate passage of of ideas <laughs> i don't know if you even noticed it i don't know that i did what what I did notice as far as like, yeah, there's like a lot of swearing and stuff, which yeah. of course there are little boys that are like, you know, trying to prove that they're men. Uh, yeah, right, but right, right. 
what I loved was a lot of like it, they said like Jesus Crow, which is such a main thing to say. I grew oh, up saying okay. that. Like nice. I was like the first time I saw that, I was like, oh man, that takes me back. It's <laughs> <was> like wow. <laughs> Yeah. So he was, you know, yeah. and obviously King is from Maine. Um, he's he's right outside of Bangor and Brewer. And so, of course, he would know the language as well. So I was just like, I, I'm always like, I, got, I get tickled pink whenever I see stuff like that and references yeah, to like yeah. Moxie and stuff like that. So great. Nice to, <laughs> nice to have the regional eclectic American cultures represented. Yeah. <laughs> to be clear, too, just to clarify my quote, it came from it, like literally the moment before they head back to Castle Rock. But he's reflecting on whether he should have went to go find the pail or the whatever the, with the berries in it. So it's this like oh, yeah, yeah, really yeah. innocent, pure like this kid was doing this really beautiful, natural thing. It was just killed by the modernity and it just there's like so many ways you could read it i thought some of the descriptions too i mean the line before it is and to wonder where i was when each thing had happened in its lonely place where i was what i was doing who i was loving how i was getting along and where i was i'd hold it read it and feel it and look at my own face and whatever reflection it might be and then it and then can you dig it i was just like man that's (laughs) why like what is that line doing there you could have just ended it with the broader list reflection. Anyway, that, um, that was the moment I noticed it the most. I think maybe if I really wanted to pour over this, I could pull another, but yeah, the blending of the adult with the child in this just, I felt like it had some hiccups. So that's my, that's my bad. Um, that particular, can you dig it quote for me? I think it didn't bother me as much because it was, I mean, he's reflecting on what he wants to do as an adult, but it's like the urges are the child urges that want to go searching for all that stuff for the pale and everything. So I think that it it's the pull between the adult versus the young Gordy. And so he ends it with the young Gordy because the, the urge I guess is that he really wants to do it. I don't know, but I, well, I think I, yeah, I found I it those as lines that. are just too blurred for me then. Like I don't, at that point, yeah. like you're narrating to me, I don't, uh, yeah, like line to line, I'm supposed to switch the adult of this narrate. I, yeah, I couldn't, I think that's that your reading. I would say is generous. Um, but I think, yeah, those, <laughs> those lines happen blurry. The dialogue is all forgiven. I mean, the, the kids can say, not that I endorse it, but I, they yeah. could say literally anything. And it's just like, okay, this is the story, the tone, the kids are like you said, perfectly. They're just pretending to be adults. This is what they think their masculinity and adulthood should be, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was the only other, yeah, kind of awkward segue, bad thing. Uh, and how about for your good? My good is um, the imagery. Um, yeah, it, he's just King is so descriptive, um, both with beautiful things and with horrible things. Um, and mm-hmm. he's also really great at creating mood and inserting insights into humanity without it being like overbearing, which is something that you and I have talked about before with other authors. Um, yeah. And so I've got like. And and I mentioned it before, but the idea of like the the idyllic descriptions that he has, like with the deer, versus some of the horrific images that we see with, like the lack of parenting, but also the body itself, and then the mm-hmm. encounter with the kids, both in front of the body and then afterwards, back in town. Yeah, um, yeah. and it's just the way that he can use an image to kind of create a particular mood, whether it's the nostalgia, which is like throughout this entire novella. And then there's also um, confusion 
there's which is rampant as well um yeah as they're trying to figure themselves out because they're they're like what 12 right they're supposed to be like 12 years old at least his closest friend is the one who you know really gets the really gets the theme (laughs) the theme engine running yeah midway through the story you know about their diverging paths and everything yeah at least they are for sure yeah they're i think they're all 12 it's just teddy looks smaller because of the yeah right yeah, all the the abuse and stuff. So, but yeah, they're all like the same age. They're all twelve on the verge of manhood. Um, so there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of nostalgia because it is a flashback. But he does it all through imagery, really, and it's just I think it's really well done. Yeah, for sure. Any any quotes you want to read, or do you, is that? Yeah, sure. Okay. I've well, got... I saw you put one down. I was going to try and tease it out. <laughs> yeah. that's the tease it's not a tease at all <laughs> hey read that quote no yeah <laughs> yeah sure um let me find it real quick hold on a second i became fine. acutely aware this is on page 411 i became acutely aware of all the noises inside me and outside me like some crazy orchestra tuning up to play and this is when he's starting to feel afraid because he yeah. um he's crossing that the 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 railway uh, uh, when it's like just a bridge mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's only a railway across right yeah. um the steady thump of my heart the blood beat in my ears like a drum being played with brushes the creak of sinews like the strings of a violin that has been tuned radically upward the steady hiss of the river the hot hum of a locust digging into tight bark the monotonous cry of a chickadee and somewhere far away a barking dog And then I'll skip down a little bit. Good guys walk firmly upright. And if your sinews are creaking like overtimed violin strings because of the adrenaline rush going on in your body, and if the long muscles in your thighs are trembling for the same reason, why, so be it. So here he's struggling with himself to act like a man, right? And to act like he's not afraid, but he is so afraid. And I just love the description of his fear. I think that was a really beautiful description of that. Yeah, no, it is. And I'm going to tag in then and say my good. I think the imagery I just chose specifically, I thought maybe the best part, and I've already stated this, but I'll give a quote, was when the body is unveiled. I just think so much of the story has to rest in that moment and relies Mm -hmm. on how you write that and what that revelation, that moment feels like. And I thought it was just the right amount of dreadful creepy but not indulgent i mean you could maybe quibble that some of the later descriptions he kind of goes all in but even i didn't think like the you know the bugs running out like you know you could amp that up a little more if you really wanted to make it grotesque but they all kind of comment on how muted the scene was except for the bugs um but i thought the exact moment it was revealed was striking on 467 it says at the bottom of this washout was a marshy mucky tangle of undergrowth that smelled bad and sticking out of a wild clock spring of blackberry brambles was a single pale white hand the breeze was now a wind harsh and jerky coming at us from no particular direction jumping and whirling slapping at our sweaty skins and open pores i hardly noticed i think part of my mind was waiting for teddy to cry out paratroopers over the side and i thought that if he did i just might go crazy it would have been better to see the whole body all at once, but instead there was that only limp, outstretched hand, horribly white, the finger simply limped, uh, limply sorry, splayed like the hand of a drowned boy. It told us the, tr- the whole truth of the matter. It explained every graveyard in the world. And that image of that hand, I should read this final line, the image of that hand came back to me every time I heard of or read of an atrocity. And I, yeah, it's a, it's a good way to broaden there at the end and kind of 
make this moment feel like the right amount of right amount of grandiose you know the conclusions mm-hmm. the boys are reaching at that time and what the revelation is kind of showing them about the world and whatever but i just think it's the right amount of there's the right amount of sense happening there's the wind they feel caught in this you know there's like a vortex happening without it being too overbearing and yeah just to to show the hand first you know and just let it be yeah. let it be this like ominous kind of warning or this you know, like in, in horror movies, which I loathe and don't really watch, but I mean, it's all about the tantalizing aspect, right? It's like sometimes mm-hmm. a horror movie's better when they don't even show you the monster or whatever it may be, the horrifying thing, right? It's the right. the the feeling is in the tension before. And I think, yeah, it just felt like everything about that scene kind of inched us into it in just the right way. Yeah, I was, um, I was a, a little apprehensive uh, getting to the scene with the description of the body because I was like, oh man, it's been like days and it's been super hot weather. This is going to be absolutely disgusting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was just like dreading almost reading that description, but it was very, like you said, muted as far as uh, the way that King handled that. And I, I really very much appreciate it. And he mentions, too, he, he also mentions the odor, too. And, I, you know, so he gets around to all those things. He does mention some of the decomposition with the bugs and stuff. And he mentions yeah. the smell, definitely. I forget what the line is about that. Something like it overwhelmed me, or I forget what it was. But yeah. yeah, none of it was gratuitous, I felt like. And so, and especially the way it started, I think is crucial. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just a well realized moment that I think hit the perfect tone. Let's use that as a segue now to our next segment, Motifs That Matter. This is kind of new. I think we're going to stick with this for now because you and I got good, I don't know, had good results with it the last time we did it or talked through it. Yeah. We each select a motif or, you know, you have two maybe. Or no, you have a quote. That's what it is. You could bring two if you want. But (laughs) we're just going (laughs) to pick at least one motif, which is just some kind of repeated literary element that we thought mattered or it could be an idea anything that is prevalent in the text that we think was super crucial. I'll again, put it to you first. What was the motif you chose? Um, I chose the motif of uh, the lack of communication, silence and ability to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, And I chose that because it's something that both like begins the story and ends the story. Um, Yeah. So the very first line that you had read earlier um, is the most important things are the hardest things to say. So, from the very beginning, we see the mention of of the lack of communication there. And, and he goes on to say that um, the next line is, they are the things you get ashamed of because words diminish them. Words shrink things that seemed limitless when they were in your head to no more than living size when they're brought out. Hmm. So it's actually like detrimental sometimes to speak them for the memory of whatever you have there. Right. which I found yeah. really interesting. And um, and it the second to last chapter also uh, mentions the the inability to communicate and that's when Chris um, dies by and Chris I think is also a side note I feel like he's meant to be almost like a Christ-like figure, right? Which is also okay. the same yeah. as Chris. Yeah. Um, because he's the peacemaker and he's the one who takes all the abuse but he's like always uh taking the upper hand and stuff like that it's like he's very much like a christ-like figure and, and so most course, crucially that for he... that analogy to hold he's got the gun right <laughs> we, yes. we know we love we all know jesus you know we, we we've read the bible right <laughs> yep i'm pretty sure jesus because has a gun in revelation by the, the body way. <laughs> yeah no but i'm yeah anyway sorry continue <laughs> but um um 
he didn't want to use it. Uh, but yeah. he gets stabbed um, doing a good thing uh, before he's even finished with his studies to become a lawyer. Um, and so Gordy reads it in the paper, and instead of talking to his wife about it, he lies to his wife yes. that he yeah. has to go like shop for something or something like that. Yeah, he can't he's going re- out yeah, for can't a particular reason. Yeah. And then he goes and like cries in a park by himself. Yeah. So that's an that's an interesting like the the emotion there, um, like anything that's emotional, even like within the story that itself, like when he talks to Chris, like there are things that he doesn't say to Chris, but that they understand. There's always a look between the two of them where they just understand each other. But to say it makes you, it makes it almost like cheap. It seems like so. I just found that really interesting and something that is consistently throughout the entire novella. Yeah, and maybe at the end too. I was thinking, I was re- wondering how to read the the moment with his wife, but it does feel like you can almost ke- keep something more meaningful by not talking about it. You know, you can keep mm-hmm. something more potent if you just keep it in your your head and your heart, so to speak. And yeah, yeah, that was I thought a pretty striking moment too, especially considering if we assume this whole thing is him writing literally every word of it which I think seems reasonable. He's clearly putting it down as a, as an author or writer. I don't know if, you know, I don't know how meta we want to get about that, but yeah, it's just, it seems that he's trying to process, but also admits that, yeah, something about talking about any of it is cheap that it won't yeah. capture. And there are descriptions in here too, when he pulls back, right. When he mentions like, uh, that, that it didn't quite look like that. Or, Oh, I don't know if it sounded like that. And it's, he sort right. of hedges at times too. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Any other thoughts on that motif? It's a very subtle one, but really important too. No, it's just, that was uh, another time that he, like he mentioned lying twice to his wife, which also in the other story, the breathing method, he only lies to his wife about the club. But in in this story, the other time that he lies to his wife is when his wife asked him what that crescent scar is where the leech had gotten him. And he lied to her about that. Right. Yeah. This entire episode. Yeah. is kind of, mute in his life yeah oh interesting yeah i chose uh for my motif i'll throw mine out there i just chose the simple one which is parental relationships i think i guess i jumped on this because i think there's it's so clear that and i think why the movie's beloved too is it's so clear that this is a movie of of young friends kind of falling away drifting away there's some line in there i didn't dig up the page for but he he essentially summarizes it kind of like well that's just how it happens like when they're done with the body story then he jumps ahead to high school age or college age and it just sort of said like well and the, you know and then we drifted apart like next year they found new friends i had new friends we were in different classes i was in the college course they weren't that kind of a thing and there's some line in there very very um, blunt which just kind of like and that's how it goes that's how life is and people drift in and out but and so given that i just felt like the the one that really deserved the most attention then is the the ones that you're born into and stuck with it's true that friends can drift but family definitionally cannot you know that is a whether or not you you free yourself from your family or feel like you must do that i mean i guess you have that choice but you can never pick it again so to speak except in right. marriage but even that's you know an arrangement it's not what you're born into and so anyway i just thought the parental relationships and parent and child ones were just so striking and i think 
I admired that there he mined comedy out of it too in the narrative. The moment when he when the child gets back, I don't even know the narrator's name by the way. What's his Gordy? <laughs> Gordy. There you go. So I'm in. The names are like <laughs> it's zero percent retention for me. I think it's awful, but I I think I understood the story. But anyway, yeah, I'm just so bad with names. Anyway, but when Gordy gets back and his mom is having another flashback and a sorrowful reminisce about reflection about her her dead son. And Gordy just says, yeah, that's a bitch on 492. And then she kind of trails back in and is like, oh, did you say something? And it's as if he just went through the trenches, you know, that he's sort of caked in the filth of like a war. He's just basically been through a battle kind of almost literally in a way. There was death. There was a corpse. There was an almost fight. There was an actual like at some point he fought his friend in there, you know, that had to tackle. I think it was Teddy or something. But so, yeah, he essentially just had the, the most dramatic 48 hours of his life probably. And yeah, to have that moment, just I thought that was hilarious. Uh, the response of it, I mean, it's also tragic too. I, I could pull the quotes on three thirty-eight about Teddy's father abusing him and having his flashback. I'm, we're assuming the people have read this with us, so I'm not even going to read those quotes. But I do think it, it does those comparisons, right, between how the parents treat their kids and how they respond, and then also how the kids kind of find each other. I think that's the motif that mattered the most to me, and the contrast between those two things jumps out as something that is probably, I don't, you know, who knows what King intended, but it feels like one of the more dominant ideas to me. And just to, to make the parents just so negligent or nasty up front mm-hmm. so quickly in the story, I just thought, oh, this is going to be something that, yeah, this is, it's kind of like a, do you pick your friends or family almost in a way? Right. I'm not sure what, how you, do you finish, do you have a finishing thought on the motif? Do you read it a certain way? Um, no, but but to comment on 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 your point about like choosing family over friends almost, yeah. Where like Vern and Teddy have, and this goes towards actually the the essay section um, that I responded for you, yeah, yeah, um, a little bit. But it's Chris's family is, and Teddy's family and Vern's family. Their families are all the lower class families that have the expectations that they won't amount to much. They're going to stay stuck in town and they're going to have the same job that everybody else has over at the factory or right, over at the mill right. and that they're going to go to the same bar every night and stuff like that. And so Vern and Teddy do that um, until their lives are cut short. And then Chris rejects his family almost uh, it, more so his family rejects him because he chooses to do better for himself. So it's like, he's choosing not even his friends, but he's choosing himself over family, but the, the other yeah. Teddy and Vern don't. Yeah, no, they won. It's almost as if they can't, it's like the, right. the vortex or the, I think I said that word earlier, the black hole of their, of their family trauma is just too severe. It just eats them up. It's just too severe to, to be overcome. And I think, and it's the adult narrator saying this, right? It's not the child at the time, but the, even the adult kind of just, I guess just kind of shrugs it off. Maybe I should pull a quote for that officially, but I feel like that's how I'll remember the narrative ending. That kind of message or tone, just kind of like, you know, what can you do? It's, that's the way the, the way the hand is dealt and you play your cards and then you just kind of see if you make it out. Yeah. There's um, a quote on 498. It says, yeah, um, some people drown. That's all. It's not fair, but it happens. That, some people yeah. drown. That was the image. Cause when Chris brings it up, he says, you know, you're, you know, you should get rid of your friends. He says something like, damn your friends or get rid of your friends. If they're going to pull you under, if they're going to, yeah. yeah. Pull you under the, the wake or whatever. Yeah. It's kind of a brutal message, but also 
I guess with the the leeway of friendship is that you can have these really transcendent experiences, but then move on to new ones with them. Whereas with your family, if that is too caustic and too extreme, it's kind of like the thing you can't escape no matter, no matter how hard you try. Pretty, I don't know, pretty bleak stuff. At least he went on to have a family, I guess, Gordy, (laughs) maybe trying to rectify it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think he even comments in there somewhere about how he... He feels like he's a good father most of the time or something like that. So yeah. we, we can hope. And the, and the cycle of abuse, I believe, is the that would be the expression for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's jump to the essays. I know you alluded to them. Um, Amanda and I like to, as kind of recovering or current educators, we like to end <laughs> the book clubs. Recovering, I like it. Yeah, recovering. <laughs> it's, you never escape, though. It's like it's the black hole of education. It never quite leaves. You know, you're, it is an all-consumptive thing anyway. Yes, we do like to throw imaginary essay prompts at each other. The point of this exercise is to just dig into the work, analyze it deeply. We're not actually going to read an essay here. We're just going to talk through a prompt and an outline, essentially, give our thoughts or ideas. And uh, it's a way for, I I think of it as like poking and prodding, you know? Yeah. Get out the old literature, stick, poke the other person, see what their response is, see how they come back. (laughs) (laughs) That's about as vivid as I want to get with it, but that seems seems correct. And so let's jump to these imaginary essays. I will, as usual, pose mine first to you. My question was, yeah. oh, and we do prepare these in advance, by the way, so this is not impromptu. Though it could be, if you want if you want it to be. Woo. But yeah, go for it. Go wild. <laughs> my, I have a new question. Now, my question for Amanda is that there is plenty of class commentary in the story. Not the most dominant thing, but it it's explicit text. I mean, it's like directly commented. It's the whole thing Chris talks about. It's one of his main issues in the story with Gordy. So my question was broad. It's just what is the role of class in the book and how do you read King's portrayal of it? What does it help us understand about America? And I I would say the scope of it doesn't seem I have a statement about America, but definitely American small towns. So I don't know. How did you read it? Um, so the way that classism in America versus classism like in um, in the olden days, back during the Victorian era and prior to that. Um, so back then it was all about um, um, like the aristocracy, the monarchy and stuff like that. So if you're related to somebody who is the monarchy, then of course you're part of the aristocracy and therefore that's a higher class and it's also based on where you work. In this story, it's still about family. There is no monarchy in America. Right. Um, But it's still that idea of family is what informs what class you're in, which I found really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's still about family and it's still about uh, what you do for work as well. So if you are blue collar, you are of a lower class versus like Gordy is a writer and Chris was going to be a lawyer these are white collar jobs that would take them out of the town as well um so i thought that was interesting to see and and that i think is a commentary on on what classism looks like in america now and i think that it could even be applied to outside of small towns Right. Yeah, of course. In America. I think, yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I, yeah. the, the point you make here on the document, I'm just cheating now. I'm just looking at the doc. Yeah. But yes, the the reaction of Chris's family to his rev, his dramatic revelation that what he wanted to take a harder algebra class or something. Yeah, you know, it's like he wanted to go into the college course. Yeah, it seems like the most minute thing of just kind of like, OK, yeah, if you want to manage it or, you know, we, but yeah, the reaction from it and how sort of like viscerally they, they abused him over that. 
tells mm-hmm. perhaps the whole story. Yeah, that it's yeah. Go no, go ahead. Yeah, the so that aspect of like having those two classes, like uh, or the a class system, even in a, a modern America, is interesting because it is a form of um, othering, which is people who are in the higher classes, who are in the dominant class, who are in the dominant whatever, they want to maintain that dominance by pointing out the difference between the dominant class versus the non-dominant class, right? So within the non-dominant classes, you see other acts of othering, um, which we, which often leads to acts of um, intolerance, violence, which we see here with Ace and Eyeball, who look right, right, right. They they are asserting their own dominance within their class even though they are not a dominant class because they need to feel some kind of power and he and, which is, and the way he comes back around to whatever character beat him when he when he sees him in the hometown and he's overweight the the yeah. commentary on that is it's just you're right though the story i think tonally has to be read in this manner it, it just mm-hmm. doesn't feel like it needed to be but i it's clearly what the story wants to convey i don't know you know again i don't want to ever speak for king but that's what his story is speaking to because for example like the weight gain thing you know he's, he's a fat old yeah. man now like that is said with only derision right that's only said yeah. in, in a critical negative way of like oh he really lost it huh which instead of just kind of like a natural part of aging or being comfortable even, or I don't, I don't know. You know, it's just like, nope, that's a bad thing. He's fat and old and sucks. And he never left the town. <laughs> it's just kind of yeah. like, okay. And he was on his way to a bar. <laughs> yeah. And I'm yeah. sure the writer is too, just in New York. I, it's just like, I don't know. <laughs> it, I just know there's ways that this could be written, but I think tonally and the reflection the narrator gives who, who yeah. with whom I think we're mostly meant to sympathize or empathize given the dominant other parts of the narrative anyway but yeah it's just sort of at the end he just kind of shrugs and is like yeah and i you know and look at them there he is stuck truly and he's and he's overweight which is never good uh apparently (laughs) yeah yeah and and um has like a beat up truck and stuff like that like it's not good yeah 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 i would say uh, maybe it veers into cliche in, in that sense uh, or maybe well, th- that's the thing is like yeah. he it, it should be a cliche because he's living like a cliched life yeah aces yeah yeah i i yes that is true i i suppose the reading i'm bringing to this is um not a reading it's just me <laughs> i just want to defend <laughs> it uh out of my own beliefs and nature but i i suppose yeah i don't I didn't get to the end of the narrative and think it soured the whole thing on me, given its conclusions and sort of the class biases in the in the story or, or whatever. I didn't think any of it was particularly egregious. So yeah, I yeah. but I agree. It ha- I I do think it that part has to be read that way too. Do you? How about this then? I did want to ask you this before we um before we move too far past it. When Chris falls back and they're like a mile away from the other two guys, and that's when Chris is really hounding him about not about moving on and getting new friends. Is that then them coalescing in a class? Are they having a class meeting against the other two? Then is that? Would you say that was a moment where they are elitist or something, or participating in a way? I think that see, it's tough because. With Gordy in particular, Gordy didn't want to hear it because Gordy was like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Right. Like Vern and Teddy, they're just like us. I'm just like them. Like yes. we're all going to be friends forever. But Chris is like, nah, dude, that's not how life actually works. 
Yeah, yeah, and I, th- and then, but, but well, then by the end of the narrative, through the narrator's voice, I think Gordy succumbed to that, I guess, or maybe something even worse, or maybe something even lazier in a way, where he's just kind of like, those were the cards, and now that guy's fat and old, and I'm not, or something, you know? Yeah. I, and so, yeah, that did, yeah, they almost had their little, because they, they never bring it up again, and you're not wrong, Gordy defends explicitly at the beginning to his father, right? He defends all right. of his friends and says, I hate it, you know, it's kind of like the rage bubbles up in him when he's he's like, ah, I knew, my father didn't put up much of a fight, but I knew what he was going to say, right? I knew he was going to mm-hmm. critique them and on these false grounds or whatever. Yeah, so in a weird way, Chris kind of turns him. Well, yeah, Chris is the the ever realist, right? I mean, he's got the hard life and he's the one who is trying to fight being relegated to the non-dominant class. He's he's the one who has to fight against his own parents even and to to try to do better for himself and to do something like with his intelligence. I mean, Gordy continuously talks about his intelligence and the teachers are all down on him too because of yeah. his family name. So uh, I think that it goes back to that idea of like the idyllic where Gordy starts off as like, Oh yeah, we're all going to be friends forever and all this stuff. And then at the end he's like, yeah, man, like some people you just can't help out of, out of the pit, but you know, others like with Chris, he could help him and they helped each other. Right. Hey, I help him. He tutored him endlessly and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Directly tried. No, that's completely true. It's a good, it's a strong reading for sure. Any other final thoughts on class commentary or observation? Yeah, I think that, um, so the main point I think, uh, for me, like to notice any of the class, the classism and stuff like that is, um, like with the othering and stuff like that, it's all, tied into identity and identity is one of the major themes of this story because this is a it's like a bildungsroman right where you have the Gordy is starting off as this like wide-eyed innocent kid and by the end he's like kind of hardened and he loses some of the the childish outlook on life through like even though he's had like not a great experience growing up it's still he was able to see all the, the wonder and beauty, like with the, the deer scene and stuff. And then at the end, it's like he loses a lot of that. So identity is very much tied into both the story and into the, the class system within this town, because your last name, your family is a part of your identity. Your relationships are a part of your identity. But then if you have to struggle to remake yourself, you're also remaking part of your part of your identity to try to get out of there. Right. So I thought that was yeah. really interesting. Yeah. No, I think that's all well said. And there's I, the fact that it comes up at all explicitly, because this could have just been such an archetypal story of, I mean, no matter what, it's going to be innocence lost of some kind, but it could have yeah. just been about death, you know, about mortality yeah. or something. And, it, you know, it, it is explicitly so, but yeah, the, it worked in a couple other elements of it that I think it, yeah, gives it some nuance and texture for sure. Okay. Um, go ahead and throw throw me into the fire here, Amanda. What is your prompt for me? <laughs> I got you. Um, so we see a lot of Gordy's adult writing by a lot of, I mean, we see the very first paragraph, the very first chapter is Gordy setting it up to be a flashback, right? And then we see at the end, it's Gordy um, as an adult explaining what happened to all the other characters when they became adults. And then we have two stories that Gordy wrote as an adult 
in like the middle of the novella. Right. So what effect did including Gordy's adult writing, uh, specifically those two stories in chapters seven and 16 have on the overall story and how did it affect your reading of the novella? Yeah, talk about frames. We've got a lot of frames here. We've got a lot of <laughs> tales happening in tales and everything. It's all very exhausting. I think, yeah. okay, first thing I'll say before I actually answer the prompt or give some kind of thesis or what have you, I did think that the story he wrote in college, or maybe they both were published, and just for shorthand, one is the, I'm just going to call it the car story, and the other one's the pie story. Like, the one's about the guy, nice. the angry kid at his family, he likes his car, he drives his car, he's jealous of the other cars, and then the other one's the pie-eating contest, whatever. So yeah. in the car story, I know that at the end, he explicitly, King, explicitly pulls out and then gives the modern-day or current author-narrator commentary to say, like, man, I was a pretentious idiot, huh? That reeks of, like, an undergrad prompt or whatever he says. Mm -hmm. I The odd thing was, though, it, even if King admits to not having these literary aspirations he can still he can still fake it like in that story there were a couple sentences where i was like oh that's a pretty good you know that's like a hemingway-esque detachment sentence of just some striking image that feels really i don't know maybe base but in a in a kind of accessible way or something it just had there were moments in there anyway so even if even as i was reading it as sort of this critical maybe even satirical piece just sort of a takedown mm -hmm. of like people who who try attempt that type of writing. It's funny that he can still kind of do it at the same time. I just thought that, <laughs> which the narrator also comments on. But I just thought that was kind of funny. Um, okay, so an actual answer to this: the the three seventy four part, the the car story. It feels so blatantly like childhood processing and is basically summarized to us as that from the narrator too, that he's just trying right. to process. It's sort of like a, it's almost like a, a forward, what am I looking for? The word, I'm going to use like VHS terms. It's like fast forwarding in a movie or something. It's almost like a fast forward to show, here's all the trauma from my childhood or a lot of it. Here's some of the things that I experience. And so it kind of gives you an early read on his own ability to process that stuff and work through his parental relationships, childhood traumas, all that other stuff. And so that's how I read it in the moment for sure. It was just kind of like, okay, this is another layer to his childhood. This is another way he processed it, maybe at an earlier age than his narrator age. Um, I also, as a commentary on that, I thought some, and again, I thought some of the moments in that were really well realized. It was overwritten, but like the way the character in that, the male character speaks to the, the girl after their, after their sexual encounter and everything, it was a little disturbing and I didn't find it super overwrought. I thought like the still friends right line that he follows up with after he, he's like, he's like still friends. Right. And then he like tries to feel her up instead. There was some high schoolish immaturity and simplicity to it that I thought was well realized in that story. But anyway, yeah. that's how I read it. Basically like, here's my, here was part of my childhood. This is going to give me the character some more texture. Then I think the interesting part is the pie story is so strikingly different, right? It's, it's pure entertainment. It's a, it's with, it's reliant on a total twist, right? It's completely meant to build up to this one moment of catharsis and for, from lard ass Hogan, by the way, which, you know, what a name really, really digging <laughs> yeah. into the childhood slang there. But it, it's so clearly, I mean, if you read the moment when it happens, right on 429, when the twist in that story happens, but I must interrupt for a moment to tell you that there was an empty bottle in the medicine cabinet at lard ass Hogan's house. And so it's just such a blatant stoppage in that story. It's clearly just building to a climax for fun, for a good, for a joke, right? For giggles or just for the absurdity and the fun of it and his revenge. It's just a revenge story made fun. 
And yeah. I think that, so when you look at the, how those two are presented, the first is a completely random interjection, by the way, has no narrative introduction. It just, so he just dumps this other story in the story. So it's very jarring. I think it took me a couple pages to realize like, oh, this is his life. Just another person's living it, I guess. And then yeah. the other one though, has a direct lead in. Like it's, it's, it's as if the, the narrator is speaking as a child, then the story comes in to kind of finish it out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so by the time I finished the second one, it was it felt like, okay, this is a rebuttal to the first, which I think fits in terms of the story and the themes that the second one is a mass appeal entertainment, which is a bit thoughtful and doesn't fully come across. Right. It doesn't get a great resounding review from anyone but Chris in the moment. But it's a pretty clear sense of like. Gosh, maybe I'm reading this too far or something, but it's like King's Own Aspirations or something where it's kind of like, I want to tell this kind of story that's entertaining and just has a bit of a simpler structure and kind of just a baseline appeal, maybe even is a little exaggerative or silly in a plot way. Whereas the other one had almost no plot and was exaggerative in its details. And it's kind of, there's a, there's a moment when he, the main character of the car story is lying on a bed and he says like, in the paragraphs is like, I laid naked and thought of God or something like that. And it was just like, okay, this is, you know, clearly heavy handed and, and whatever. But it did feel like the way I would ultimately put these two together. The first one is just a, a way to catch us up on the childhood and to kind of preview the writer that King doesn't want to be and his, I guess, said in interviews does not want to be or, or more like can't be. Doesn't feel like he's in that, like he doesn't want to be Hemingway or something. He doesn't want to be a pedestal style ivory tower writer. And so the second one just felt like this is the workshop. This is where I'm headed kind of a thing. And I guess my final thought, what, what is this? What am I? It's been a half an hour now. How long is this? <laughs> <laughs> that was, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the premise of the essay segment, I guess. But anyway. So I suppose then when you take both of those things and plug it into the final narrative, right? Could it, could it be, I don't know if this would be my actual thesis for this essay, but could it be then that the story itself, the body, is the marriage of those two things? Maybe. Uh, maybe that is the ultimate reading here is that you have these two different literary styles contrasted from two different points of his life, two different, conveying two very different things. One's very rooted in his life. The other one's very just abstract, a funny, a goofy, goofy tale, goof off tale of revenge mm. and so maybe in that way the body itself is kind of kind of a marriage of both i think perhaps if i had to make a case about them and it wasn't a simple character reading like that i just said that's probably what i would try and say something like that but i would mm. love if you interjected now and cut me off and told me no, how you, what you thought all, of them. it's all great um i would even broaden that out like his his writer identity is tied so intimately with his just like general identity and uh yeah it's what gets him out class wise right yeah yeah (laughs) it's exactly right and and chris too and i thought that um with the first story the the car story um when you pointed out that it's um very much like a reflection of or just a, a reflection of Gordy's life of uh, Gordy's traumas in his childhood and then the reflection afterwards uh, that the narrator makes like, man, this was a like such a terrible story and this is what I would fix and this is what I would fix. That I think is a reflection of the still searching for, he says he's still searching for his voice as a writer at that point. Yes. So still yes. searching for his identity, which is also in that particular time frame of the novella, Gordy is still not quite a man. He's not quite 
set on his identity. He still thinks that he can be both somebody who can escape Castle Rock in the end, but also still be friends with Teddy and okay. Brian and Chris. Yeah, right? that's fair. Yes. And yeah. then the next story, the um, the pie story, is more of a transition into that adult mindset, both as the writer and as Gordy as well, where you see that it, the main character there, Lardass, he's... Um, he is pinned by everyone in town with an identity. He resents that identity like Chris, and then he gets revenge and is able to change, even though it's not a better name in the end uh, for him. Yeah, right. He is well, he able some to control. somehow. Exactly. He's able to assert control and change an aspect of his identity and feel satisfied in a way about it, which Chris also has to go through that change. And Gordy also has to go through that change later. Yeah, I will say that it's in these moments, we'll get to this in the book rec if anyone listened to this or is listening to this and had listened to the book recommendation, which... I guess behind the scenes editing, we haven't recorded that yet. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> in the book rec, I do want to talk about it and we'll talk about it here. Is just kind of the meta nature of King's writing in these. It's it's clear that he wants to talk about storytelling a lot and the nature yeah. of it and how it contributes. I, I guess I'll conclude by saying, well, two things. Yes, everything agree with what you said. I found it fascinating how reluctant the first character, the car character, was to just open up right his conf- when she confesses love and intimacy he just says like that's right or you bet you bet is such a again i thought that voice that high schoolish voice of affirmation but like emptiness was i thought that was well realized i didn't think that was over mm-hmm. and i thought it was i thought i don't know I, that struck me anyway but it's just such a clearly closed off person and the whole entire the body novella framing is just trying to comprehend or understand or even trying to see if you can convey the thing you want to right the first line just trying to get back to that idea of can can you even convey the thing you feel like you need to or is it too immense or too great or too important or something so yeah I, that i think is reflected there too um my final thought though this is more structural than this actual essay prompt i think you could delete both of them from this and it would lose almost nothing except yeah. for to enlighten or uh, not enlighten rather to indulge people like me and i think like you who finds those extra elements kind of like ooh, that's fun like let's let's poke at that what the hell is going on what is this but honestly if you delete them and i don't remember the movie at all at this point stand by me i'd be shocked if those were in stand by me but maybe they are i just feel like if i was a hollywood uh film adaptation writer person and that would be the first thing i would cut it's so obvious like just cut both of those. It doesn't, <laughs> it adds some extra writerly aspiration stuff to it, but they're mm-hmm. uh, the, the way the first one didn't even show up naturally in the narrative was just incredibly off putting, which I, you know, did it work in the end? I think it gave us plenty of things to talk about and in a fun way. And so, yeah, I think it was fine, but yeah, I think you could just cut them too. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah. I think that's a good point. As far as like the movie aspect, I, I don't remember the movie as well. Me neither. I remember um, the train scene only from that movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, horrifying. Um, and I remember them talking a lot. That's what I remember. But yeah, um, yeah. I don't. I can't imagine that they would include that the director and the producer or whatever they would include the story scenes just because it would be difficult to to put that in in that way. But uh, I think they, that yeah. in the work in the novella itself, I think that I enjoyed it. I I thought that it was something great that I could think about and talk about and I, I i liked that he kind of experimented with that yes yeah i think that experimental side was i found fun and 
if not entirely fulfilling, it, it at least gives us enough literary fodder to for things to pour over. And I think it added another texture, a little element to it. Maybe not essential, but yes, it was. And when your question, when I read your question, I kind of, I sighed, but kind of nodded. Cause I was like, that's maybe the thing I had the least to say about, but then it's kind of the thing where you got to be, at least for me anyway, the way I read this novella. So it took someone pushing me into it to think about it that hard. You know, otherwise I would have yeah. just been like, Oh, it's a character moment. And like, this funny, goofy story tells his buddies, whatever. But yes, no, there's definitely more to it than that. It's just, it took you prompting me or proposing it at all. <laughs> I yeah, think without yeah. that, I would have just shrugged and been like, they could delete this, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. So would have read it simpler for sure. But hey, you know, that's a good, that's a good, I guess, sales pitch for this entire podcast and endeavor at all. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for the prompt. Any final thoughts on the inclusion of the stories or any meta stuff you want to talk through? Nope, I'm good. Excellent. Well, we've hit our quota. The timing is perfect. <laughs> we like to nice. do hour-long book clubs. We've really nailed it again. I think maybe that just means we found a format that works. Crucially, what we need is for me to talk for an hour straight on an essay prompt. So that's, you know, <laughs> we're doing we're doing it. <laughs> really achieving our dreams here. At any rate, let's talk through some closing notes, folks. We are, of course, the Lightly Literary Podcast, which you can find on Instagram and Facebook. We have a group on Facebook and an Instagram handle that is the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. Follow us there. Check us out. Rate and review us if you've made it this far. Tell your friends about it, your family, whatever. Anybody who wants to read is welcome here. This was a book club entry, of course, but we do have an upcoming book, a new book. Every two weeks, we pick a new book. So the upcoming one is Kim Ji Young, born 1982, a novel by, oh no, um, I... Okay. okay, there we go. I Thank you so much. I didn't want to put it on you. I just wasn't sure if the beginning was Cho, but it is Cho. Nope. Or Cho. 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 Okay. Cho. I can Cho double Nam check the Korean Chu. spelling, though. That's okay. And that will, it's okay you can or can't. It's up to you. But it is a, a novel, a very brief feminist novel, and written and translated out of Korean fascinated to get into that that will be coming up soon we are going to release the book recommendation for that story on monday march 15th and then as is our normal schedule on friday march 19th we'll post the first half of that novel we'll do a book club on it a deep dive on just the first half of that story so we hope you join us for that amanda do you you chose the book do you want to give a short pitch or just tell them what it's about or something it's um it's a book that has been turned into a movie in korea and it spearheaded um, a feminist movement um, legislatively in Korea. Um, so it's it's pretty important, I think. Um, yeah. It, it came along at the same time as the Me Too movement. So it's um, it's a pretty important read for Excellent. anyone who's interested in that. Yeah, novel a novel promoting real change, which I don't know if novel is the medium for that these days. It is maybe for me, per, you know, it's the one that maybe I respond to the most personally, but to see a novel you know, hoisted up and sort of presented as a work like that in a real political way. Fascinating. Mm. I've read the first page. So <laughs> little, little behind oh, the thanks. scenes, uh, yeah, a little sneak peek <laughs> for the listeners out there, a little production note. Yeah, we'll, we'll dig into that soon. But yes, that is, again, the title of the novel is Kim Ji Young, born 1982. It's a short one. So if you're thinking, I don't want to dig into a long work, hey, this is going to be brief and enlightening, so join us. Um, those are the dates for the book rec and the upcoming book club. Uh, Amanda, again, any final thoughts on the Stephen King or the story? Uh, no, what a, I, I just really enjoyed it, and I think everybody... Yeah, 
I hope you guys enjoyed it too. My embarrassment <laughs> over not having read King is gone, and I mostly enjoyed it. I think, you know, will I pick up nice. a novel of his one day? I'm pretty confident I will. I was intrigued. Nice. Both I found satisfying enough, and uh, the horrifying elements were toned down enough for me to kind of nod and think, okay, yeah, I could hang. I could hang with this. I don't think I'm going to jump into anything super nasty, and I think the movie The Shining has scarred me that I'm not going to read that. Whatever the book of that is, I don't <laughs> I don't want to read that. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe something a little lighter. Anyway, uh, thanks as always for listening with us. Follow on all the social media and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. 